0: I want to start this morning off with a question. How do you determine whether what someone says is true or false? I'll start with an example. So in Edmonton, there's this guy called the push-up guy, very profound name. And he would go around and challenge people to see if they could beat him at push-ups. And uh, this guy didn't look like anything special until he actually started doing it. He looked like a little bit of a, let's say, nice term, fluffy guy. But he could do a lot of push-ups. But if someone were, to come, someone were to come up to you and say, I bet I could do 200 push-ups without taking a break, if they look like Dwayne Johnson or otherwise known as The Rock, you'd probably believe him because his biceps are bigger than my head. But if they look like uh, maybe a little bit rounder, around the middle guy with not that particular toned of arms, you might question it. But uh, if you're thinking about the, the demonstration of this, what we say uh, matters not only because uh, whether or not people believe what comes out of our mouth, but how we determine whether it's true or false is by following it up with actions. So you can say whatever you want. I could say that I'm six foot three. And maybe I look like it's standing on the stage, but it doesn't matter how much I want to be six foot three, I'm only six foot one. So But the the words that we use, they, they matter. You got that one, hey? Don't don't say no guesses for how tall I actually am. It's a sore spot, all right? But we've been looking at the last few weeks about the power of our words. Our words have power. Our words have great power. They have power to destroy and power to harm. When God wanted to create the universe, he used words. He said, let there be light. He spoke the world and everything into it through words. And then in the Garden of Eden, we saw that uh, uh, we talked about how the enemy, he didn't just use words to deceive Adam and Eve. He talked about words. He said, did God really say? He had them question, Adam and Eve question, whether what God said was actually true. And so the words that we have are so powerful, and the words that we use. And the, the primary revelation that we have of God is called the Word, the Bible, the, whole, the, the Holy Word of God, or the Holy Book, is often referred to as the Word of God. It's God's true Word that He spoke to us. But back to the original question, how do we know what words are true and what words are false? Research, that's one way. So Google... Google's absolutely always reliable. Wikipedia is super reliable, not. But uh, how do we actually know? Like if I were to say I can do 200 push-ups straight, your response, show me. So if you want to know whether something's true, you have to look at the evidence, and that for one-on-one as a person is their action. And so the talk alone can just be mere boasting. We can just say I could do all sorts of crazy things, I'm an amazing person, but you want to see that evidence in my life. So if you want to see whether someone's word is reliable or not, you have to watch their life. And so James, the the brother of Jesus, that's one of the main themes of his letter. He, to the book of James, the letter of James, is that he doesn't want you just to talk about having faith. He doesn't want you to just say, yes, I believe in Jesus. He says, prove it with your actions. And so today he starts with a challenge. In uh, James 3:13 to 18, I got a new mic and apparently I'm having trouble fitting it. So it's a little distracting this morning, sorry about that. But, so James 3:13 to 18, he has a challenge. So turn there or swipe there in your iBible. Uh, i am be reading of the NIV 2011, so it's slightly different out of the Pew Bibles. But he starts off with this great challenge to help us finish off our series on watch our words. Or watch your words, rather. So James 3, 13 to 18... There you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. May God bless the reading of his word. So James starts off with a challenge that if you think you're wise, you think you're a person of understanding. Prove it. Prove it with your actions. So who is wise and understanding among us? Are you bold enough? Put up your hand. No, you don't. Please don't do that this morning. But you'll have everyone watching you like a hawk for the rest of your life. But uh, you don't have to answer that out loud. But who is wise and understanding? Show it. Don't just talk about being a person of faith. Show it with your actions. And he specifically says, if you're wise in understanding, that's great. But show it with your good deeds. Don't talk about how wise you are. Show how wise you are. So I love James's style. He's like, you think you're something? That's great. Now go out and show me how great you are. He doesn't just say, just come and say all the right words, but do the right things. So you say you love Jesus. Show me that's what James is saying you say you love the Son of God then prove it and uh, my older daughter when she goes to, to dance class she has a ballet tap split thing so it's an hour half hour of each she loves coming home and saying, I learned this new dance move and she tries to explain it and God bless her she's not quite there at the explanation of the dance stage or I'm not visual enough to understand it so uh, and I say show us the dance move and then we can understand what a shuffle step turn is cuz I have no idea <laughs> But we say, show us. Show us what the dance move is. And then we can feel like we're a part of it. Then we can actually grasp it and understand it. Now, with wisdom, it's not necessarily as simple to show as a dance move. There's no just one action that you can show to show that you're wise. But it's impossible to overstate how important wisdom is. The book of Proverbs, for example, is all about wisdom. It personifies wisdom. It has all these pithy sayings. That shows how important wisdom is and wisdom is a theme all throughout the Bible that says get wisdom wisdom is so important and just keep going get wisdom and if you think when you think about wisdom in your mind what do you think of what do you picture in your head gray hair there you go we have a lot of wisdom in this room Uh, Star Wars fans maybe you think of the wise and old Yoda Ooh, wise I am that was a terrible impression. That was almost as bad as Andrea's. But, but, uh, or maybe we think of, maybe we think of the uh, the hermit that's on top of the mountain. That if you want wisdom, you have to climb this mountain, go up to the top, and say, "Oh, great person, what do I what do I need to do in this situation?" Go eat a taco. That's what we we think of. We think of someone who's old, who has all of the knowledge in the world that can just tell us something. They've lived a long life. They have there. And so, as much as wisdom is the uh, the theme of the book of Proverbs and everything, let's uh, a study of wisdom shows that it's not just the accruing of knowledge. Someone could have all the knowledge in the world and still be a fool, because knowledge isn't just or wisdom isn't just about knowledge. It's about having knowledge and knowing what to do with it. And so uh, one definition of wisdom is wisdom is using knowledge to distinguish the moral thing to do in any given situation and then doing it. So not just knowing the good thing to do, but actually doing the good thing. So wisdom knows the good and knows how to do the good. So wisdom is doing the right thing. So therefore, knowledge isn't just passive, it's active. It's not about book learning, if you are foolish and we could think of lots of characterizations of the uh, uh, professor who has all of this knowledge but doesn't know how to make a sandwich. It's just kind of this useless thing. They have all this book knowledge about this one specific thing, but they don't know how to actually live life. That's not the wisdom we're talking about. The wisdom is understanding, wisdom and understanding that actually leads us to doing good things. So after providing this challenge, James then goes in and gives us two contrasting views of wisdom. The first is false and earthly wisdom, and the second is true and heavenly wisdom. And so since James starts with the what not to do, we will too. We'll start with earthly and false wisdom. So in verses 14 to 16 of uh, James 3 here, James gives us some warning signs uh, for those who may think they're wise but aren't actually. So the characteristics of this, as given by James, are envy. You wish you had what other people have and that comes with this comparison you compare yourself to other people selfish ambition which our world often calls drive and says is a great thing or motivation which notice that it says selfish it doesn't say ambition itself is a bad thing you can want to do great things but if you're doing it selfishly that's when it's bad and so uh, selfishly looking to your own needs and your own wants this causes you to use other people to pull yourself forward rather than trying to help those around you. And uh, it also is looks like taking the credit for anything good that happens, but never accepting the blame. So if you're at work and uh, it's a team project, well, that was my great idea. It succeeded. You get, you get all the rewards and say, yeah, that was my, my idea. But if it if fails, say, well, it's, it was a good idea, but my team was terrible. It's their fault. Like, they're the ones that did it. And we all do this at one point or another. And so it's uh, n- wanting the attention but never taking the blame. And also it comes with a, uh, an unwillingness to take responsibility for our own uh, inaction or the own things that we have done wrong. So it's not taking the blame for things when we actually deserve it. And the uh, book of Proverbs 14.12 characterizes wisdom as well as anywhere else in the Bible in this kind of wisdom, this false wisdom. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man or a woman. Women are not the hook. But in the end, it leads to death. And so it seems like something that's really great. It seems like a great idea. But in the end, it only leads to death. And then this kind of selfishness and self-deception, James warns about early on. And he, he says that it's, it's absolutely dangerous to be prideful. A couple of direct verses that speak to this are Proverbs 3.7. It says do not be wise in your own eyes fear the lord and shun evil. And then Proverbs 28:26 He who trusts in himself or herself is a fool. Pretty simple. That's in the Proverbs it contrasts wisdom with fools, wise people with fools. So saying that if you trust only in yourself, if you think you're everything you need to be, then you're a fool. You're not good enough to be absolutely everything you need to be. So James is essentially saying through all of this that if you don't have a heart that is aligned with God, if you don't follow Jesus obediently in your life through deeds which follow your speech, then don't even say you have faith. Don't talk about being a follower of Jesus if you don't actually show it in your life. He says, uh, he says that is the foolish thing to do. That's earthly wisdom and it's boasting. So he's harshly and directly calling out those who would say that they're followers of Jesus, but don't show it with their lives. And, he's, and he says, if you're seeking your own glory rather than the glory of God, then don't say you follow God because you're not. And so for those who look to themselves first rather than to Jesus, he calls them out and says, stop, don't do it. And this rebuke is intended... Uh, and needed for those who actually show their faith with their actions. So we can say all we want all day long, I follow Jesus. But if a crisis, crisis happens or something else appealing comes along and we choose to go in an opposite direction of Jesus, then he's saying don't fool yourself. You're not actually following God. So prove it if you have faith in God. So those are, the, those are the characteristics of false wisdom. It's a knowledge that puffs up, that says, I'm really good, I know a lot, I'm better than other people. That's the wisdom that uh, earth has. And look at uh, things and act as if we're better and superior than other people. So I have a master's education, I have a PhD, so I'm smarter and I'm better than everyone else. I deserve, a better, pr- I deserve better attention. I deserve the credit. Everyone else is a fool. If you find yourself constantly thinking how foolish everyone else is, that's probably a warning sign. And uh, I have to do that when I'm driving sometimes. I have to go, <laughs> maybe I'm not the best driver in the world, maybe, I, maybe the issue's me, but... And we could all fill in the blank there. Are there times when I think I'm better than everyone else? <laughs> Check your heart. <laughs> and so we've seen that the, the negative effects of unholy speech that we've talked about in the weeks past... It's gossip, it's slander, and it's this poison that can spread. And James 16 shows the results of such behavior and effects. It leads to boasting, it leads to envy, and it, it spreads throughout. So this, uh, it, it ends in disorder and evil practices. So it, the, the negative speech that happens in community leads to negative actions. So these are things like lying, Uh, stealing, cheating, manipulation, maneuvering, trying to get our own way through this process. And it could go on and on and on. These are the effects of negative speech. And so James is saying uh, in verse 16, he reasons from the effects that you can see around somebody who has earthly wisdom, and that's it. It's that around them is this pool of chaos. Around them is this pool of negativity rather than having an uplifting effect on people around them, they actually have a negative effect. And so he says you can see that effect when you take a step back and look what's going on around that person. They may have great talk. They may profess Jesus. They may say all of these great things. And yet if you look at the results and the fruit of the lives that's around them, it's negative. And so he's warning these people and he's warning us, all of us, to watch out. And sometimes we all have a very, I shouldn't even say sometimes, most of the time we all have a very hard time seeing ourselves for how we really are. The ability of the human heart to deceive ourselves and think that we are the one that's right even when we're wrong is incredible. And so he warns of this self-deception. If, our, if we can look around at our circle, rather than talking about other people and let's look around the circle, let's look at ourselves and look around at the circle around us. When we are around people, are we bringing them down? Is everyone around us seem like they're kind of down? Maybe, maybe the influence is us. Even if we could talk the right talk, a, a show or a, a closer look shows that our wisdom may not be of God. So when our lives are directed against God, even if we have the right speech, even if we talk the nice things, we can have superficial religious speech. We know the things to say. We can't help but act from our hearts. Our hearts actually betray us for what we are actually following. So before we go too far in this line of thinking, we shouldn't uh, try to demonize people. James isn't saying that the church is filled with all of these people that are possessed by demons. He's just saying that there's a duality, that sometimes we make bad choices and do these things. And that's an extremely scary thought that sometimes we uh, can be trying to serve God, but if we're actually just thinking in an earthly, human way, our human selfishness can actually serve the enemy. What we think is serving God, if it's done in a selfish way, it can actually be operating for the enemy of our lives and of our souls. And so rather than trying to think of somebody who's, oh, this person is evil, we can just think of maybe they're just a person with the right intentions but with the wrong twist on things. And it, for a biblical example, we don't need to look any further than Peter. Peter was the original, the rock. Dwayne Johnson stole that from him, but he was the rock first. He didn't quite have the bod for it, but Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And he walked so closely with Jesus. And in Matthew 16, 16, he has an amazing declaration. He, ha- he has this thing, uh, this wisdom that he is able to profess that is from God alone. It says. Um, uh, Jesus is asking, who, who are the people saying that I am? And they say, throw out some things. Oh, you're, you're uh, um, Elijah, come again. You're this guy, you're that guy. They throw out all these things. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with this. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He gets right to it. He says, you are God's son. You are the one that we have been waiting for. You are the promised one that is going to save all of us. And that's an amazing declaration. And so Jesus in the next verse replies, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So Simon Peter was able to declare this thing that he got from God. The Holy Spirit spoke to him and showed him that Jesus was the Son of God. That's so awesome. That's a, like, it's easy for us on this side of the cross to go, Yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. But if you were walking uh, in that time, Jesus didn't look anything like the Messiah that they thought he would be. They thought the Messiah would be a reigning ruling king that would take over the the political and the nation and that they would actually uh, kick out the Romans. Jesus came as a poor person who was the son of a carpenter from meek beginnings and just walked around homeless and just speaking and doing amazing miracles but he didn't look at all handsome. He didn't look. There was nothing special about him. is what the Bible says. He had nothing that would make you look twice at him and go, that's a leader. And yet, Peter, walking with him, talking with him, saw that he was the Messiah. That's so awesome. And so Peter has this great revelation who Jesus is. And then a few short verses later, after, uh, after Jesus is talking about that he's going to die and how he has to die to be the Messiah, Peter sticks his foot straight in his mouth. And he says, from that time on, or sorry, in 21, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, and he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Now, Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him, it says. Rebuke is to correct and at least Peter had the, uh, the, the, uh, the understanding that he should take him aside. He didn't do this in front of everyone else. He took him aside almost as a, come on, Jesus, what are you talking about? And he said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The man who just professed Jesus for the first time ever and said he's the Messiah, a few short later, verses later, has the harshest, or one of, if not the harshest rebuke in the whole Bible. It says, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Now, can anyone question that, that Peter loved Jesus? No. But he sure messed up, didn't he? What does he say? Jesus doesn't say you're you're filled with evil you're an awful person he says you do not have in mind the concerns of god but merely human concerns and that lines him up with satan he's thinking the way humans think which is naturally sinfully because of the the taint of sin in our lives and that lines him up with the enemy that lines him up with satan and so peter the original rock Later on a few times, Jesus, uh, he didn't quite learn from this. Jesus tells him that, uh, that he's soon going to be betrayed. And Peter says, even if all the other ones fall away, I, I alone will not leave you. Even unto death, talk about boasting. He's like, forget those chumps, I'm the rock. I'm going to do this. Maybe he did the eyebrow thing too. I don't know how much Dwayne the Johnson rocked off, but, or knocked off. But, but he says, no, I won't do it. And Jesus tells him, this very night, you'll deny me three times. And then the rooster will crow. And that's exactly what happened. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he says, when you turn back, encourage your brothers to come back. And so Jesus warns him, talk about grace. Talk about the love of God. So God, God, the Son of God, Jesus knew what Peter would do, knew Peter would betray him, knew he would use earthly human wisdom, and it would lead him astray, but that through God's love and grace and mercy, he'd come back. And so there's hope. Peter had great intentions for Jesus and was just trying to help him out. He's just trying to bring him back. He's like, ah, it's pretty silly, Jesus. You could just do whatever you want. And the reason that Peter had problems is because he put his desires, his thoughts, his will above God in that moment Peter was his own God He he thought I'm better than God I'm smarter than God God is wrong and that's that was the original sin before Adam and Eve that was the original sin of Satan he said I don't want to follow God anymore I want to be my own God and that's essentially what Adam and Eve chose they said I don't want God to be my God I want to be my God I want to do what I want to do and that's what I want to do and so even if the things that we do, even if the wisdom that maybe we're trying to operate in is good by worldly standards, if it doesn't line up with scripture, if it doesn't line up with godly wisdom, if it's selfish and self-serving, first of all, rather than God-honoring, then it's dangerous and harmful. So it doesn't matter how much you put God's name on something. And people do this all the time. People say that, uh, well, uh, God wants me to do this. In, uh, in Bible College, lovingly called Bridal College, there was one girl of, that was a few years before me, but the teachers told us about that. Had no less than three guys come up to her in one semester saying that that God had told them that uh, they were to marry. And uh, she, her response was pretty good, and she said, "Well, you'll have to work that out with the other two and see which one is used right, because <laughs> God certainly doesn't want that." So. Uh, sometimes we we put God's name on things and it's actually our thing. It's not God's thing because we've convinced ourselves that we want. So this type of false wisdom taints and infects others. Now, no one's going to stand up and say, yep, I'm going to boast about my earthly wisdom. So uh, James warns us about boasting about our human wisdom, but we're capable of great self-deception. We're capable of convincing ourselves that, uh, that we are doing the right thing, even if it's wrong. And that's why we need to be in a community. That's why we need people around us who have a relationship with us that can take us aside and say, are you sure about that one? Are you sure about that decision? And we're called to, to go along with Jesus. And Jesus has great grace, as Peter, uh, we see through Peter. He weeps bitterly. And yet he returns to Jesus because Jesus is faithful no matter what. And so earthly wisdom, we put ourselves up and it leads to jealousy, comparison, and distracts us from the eternal perspective we're called to by God. And so Paul, uh, contrasting human wisdom and godly wisdom, said this in 1 Corinthians 1.25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So, it's pretty clear. Let's go for godly wisdom. So, what does it look like? Reading it again, verse 13, 313 says this. But the wisdom, or sorry, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So, the primary characteristic of godly wisdom is humble obedience to God. It's humbly showing that you're following God. And it's through this we can see the humility and the, the good deeds that come from that humility. And so humility is the opposite of pride. It's not, but it's not self-effacing. It's not uh, where pride is building ourselves up and thinking ourselves great. Humility isn't tearing ourselves down. I love the saying, I'm sure you've probably heard it before, is humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So it's not putting yourself down, it's actually just building other people up. It's thinking about the needs of others rather than the needs of yourself. And so in uh, verse 17 it says, the, ver- the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. These are all the exact opposite of the negative characteristics of human wisdom. Earthly wisdom doesn't tear other people down to build ourselves up. It builds other people up. Instead of thinking of ourselves first, it's thinking of other people first. And so purity means that it's untainted. It comes from God. It's not compromised or mixed good and bad. It's not picking the least bad option. It's actually just following the good. So only a a fool likes controversy and strife and argument where heavenly wisdom seeks peace. And more on this uh, in the next verse we'll get to, but consideration means that we're caring for the needs of others. Uh, It's not always being nice, per se. We always think of, well, you can't say that because it's not nice. Sometimes the most loving and the most considerate thing to do is call out somebody for their action in private. The Bible talks about going to somebody and correcting them for their sin and if they repent and if they turn, then you have gained a brother or a sister. And so uh, being considerate means doing what is best for the person. And so, being su- and then being submissive doesn't mean being passive and just going with the flow. But it's actually submission to the right authority. So James, uh, very intentionally in this letter, was talking about Christian leadership. And he said uh, to the leaders... That uh, was in this church they submitted to him as their leader and the people in the church needed to submit to their leaders and ultimately all leadership comes from Jesus so we are all to be submitted to Jesus but then he also gives us earthly leaders to submit to and so uh, he warns about the multiplication of having a ton of people as being leaders because he said then you can't uh, some people actually go into leadership for the wrong reasons Some people go into leadership because they want to lord it over others. Some people want to control other people. And so James warns that uh, some want to be teachers or leaders for selfish ambition. And so even leaders, and especially leaders, need to lead with humility and with submission to their leaders. And the next thing is mercy and good fruit. So those who have received mercy from Jesus should be the most merciful people. If we recognize and realize how much we have been forgiven, we should forgive so much. And so the good fruit is uh, looking around, and rather than seeing the negativity around us, it should be seeing the positivity. When people uh, leave a conversation with us, do they feel built up? Do they feel encouraged? Do they feel refreshed? That should be the good fruit that comes from our relationship. The world reaps the fruit of contention and strife and anger and bitterness, and it doesn't take long to see that, what that looks like. Without naming any names of political leaders, there's one particular leader that, that spews a lot of what he is against and what he hates and what he doesn't like. And you can see the negative results that come from that. But if instead you focus on the positive and you focus on the best, And yes, there are times for hard correction, but we need to uh, build into what is good. And so the final two are impartial and sincere. And one translation uh, actually reads it as unwavering and sincere. I love the unwavering, because unwavering means being just steadfast. That no matter what situation you are going through, you act the same way. That even if you're going through hardship you can still praise God. Whether you're going through the good times or the bad times, you can still be a dedicated follower of Jesus. You're unwavering despite all of life's storms. And so this, is, this would be a person of integrity. So we talked earlier about how you can tell whether someone's words are true or not. If somebody, if you tell those around you, I'm a Christian, can they see that in all walks of your life or do you act differently depending on who's there? If you have one way of acting and talking in church and another when you're working, then that's not being unwavering. That's actually being insincere. And so uh, James also talks about the importance of the words that come out of our mouth so much. And so the words that come out of our mouths should match our actions. It shouldn't be saying one thing and then doing another. If we say something, it should be as if we've already done it. And uh, James in another part says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That should be it. If you say you're going to do something, then do it. And so uh, earthly wisdom is poisonous like a cloud that infects those around us. Godly wisdom is like a cleansing fountain that actually helps those around them. And then the final verse, uh, verse 18 says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness peacemakers are so in peace I love that it's this beautiful picture of being a farmer who's throwing out seeds of peace it's this beautiful blessing of actually causing uh, strife controversy to calm down and the harvest is a harvest of righteousness it's this harvest of goodness and so James focus on peacemaking is really at the heart of the gospel Jesus came to reconcile the world to himself by making that step. He came down to earth not to bring judgment, not to bring hardship, not to bring pain, but to say, here's the way back to relationship with God. He came to bring peace. He came to to make peace. And so uh, when we sow seeds of peace as a church, as a community, then there should be fruit of that. So there should be rich reconciling actions and activities in a church So these are evangelism, defense and care of the poor, counseling the trouble, offering hospitality to the stranger, providing shelter for the battered, sending missionaries throughout the world, and many, many more. And all of these things reap reap a harvest of righteousness. That's what we are called to do. So wherever the church of Jesus Christ is doing these things, the kingdom of God is seen at work. That's what we are called to be, to be peacemakers, So while false wisdom infects and tears down, true wisdom builds and advances. So just like an infection that goes untreated, that the patient gets worse and worse and eventually dies. The opposite, uh, and that's earthly wisdom. If it just keeps going, it gets worse and worse. But godly wisdom grows and grows. So it's a cycle that leads to, to more and more goodness, more and more good actions, more and more wisdom, more and more understanding. And so the way that, that, uh, that we are built is that we naturally operate in earthly wisdom, because that's the sinful side. But we are called to operate in godly, true wisdom. And so it's pretty apparent. And I think if any of us would ask, well, which one would I desire? I think we would all say, well, of course I want to be good. Of course I want to act. Of course I want to do the good things. I don't want to be selfish. I don't want to do anything. And there's, I don't think there's anyone in the world that says, I want to be a selfish person. But it's not just a, a desire that does it. It actually, we need something more. We need something outside of ourselves to help us with this. The way that God designs our hearts is that they're actually a product of what we feed by our minds. And so what we feed grows and what we starve dies. So what we feed grows and what you starve dies. So if you want heavenly wisdom, then you mo- must focus on and spend time developing heavenly things. And this all starts in our minds. Romans twelve two says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect way. So one of the ways to do this is meditating on the word of God. The, the illustration uh, that I love for this is like, is cows, but a little less disgusting because the way cows actually chew grass is they have four stomachs, and they, they, if, you, if you see a cow, they're always chewing on things because they chew the grass, it goes into one stomach, transfers to the other one, they regurgitate it back into their mouth, they chew it up some more, goes back into the third stomach, moves to the fourth one, and then finally comes out. So a cow is constantly chewing on grass in different stages of digestion. And meditating on the Word of God is like that, but far less disgusting. <laughs> but it, it's, it's chewing on the Word of God. It's not just reading it just all the way through the Bible and going, okay, I read it. And it's not just memorizing it either, but it's actually taking time to soak it in and go, what does that mean for me? How do I actually live that out? Jesus says to love my enemies and to pray for those who persecute me. How do I actually do that? And it's meditating on it. It's dwelling on this. And how you would do that will depend on your own specific wiring. But there's Bible apps out there. There's hard copy Bible reading plans. There's so many different ways of doing this. But the most important thing in all of this is the relationship with Jesus. You could be in church your entire life. You could hear, hear a thousand sermons. But if you don't have a personal and growing relationship with Jesus, it's useless. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't go anywhere. And so when you come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you have a reconciled relationship with Him, he saves you for heaven completely. When you say you believe in Jesus and you give him the lordship of your life, you are saved for heaven completely. You're in. That's it. That's all you got to do. But there's an entire process that takes a lifetime of growing and deepening in relationship with him. So, he saves you for heaven completely, but saves you for earth for the rest of your life, progressively. And so, we're not just meant to operate as Christians when we get to heaven. It's not about a ticket to heaven, it's actually about living out your faith on earth in this life and using the time that he gives you. So,. Uh, all of this means that if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to have earthly wisdom, you have to surrender to him. You have to live a daily walk with him. And it's uh, simple and yet difficult at the same time. It means rather than being a slave to sin, it's being a slave to Jesus the Christ. And it's uh, one of the, the beautiful pictures that I like to think of, or weird pictures that I like to think of, is often we treat Jesus like the Queen of England that the Queen of England, we, we recognize her. You know, she's the queen of our country. She's the head of our state. Uh, no laws can get passed without her representative actually marking them off and saying, yep, that's, that can be a law, yep, that can be a law. But when actually push came to shove, if she actually said, no, you can't have that law, no, you, I don't want you to do that, we'd kick her out because she's just a figurehead. We just say, yeah, she's my queen, and, and for immigrants that have come into the country, they've had to do the... The the pledge to the queen, they've had to say yes. I I follow the queen. I'm under her sovereignty, but it's just a figurehead. She's not actually there. If she actually tried to do anything, then she'd be out. And even in England, the prime minister meets with her once a week for an audience, goes through some of the things, and then leaves once a week for the queen, the most powerful person in the country. But that's often how we treat Jesus. We give him once a week. We come, give him an update of our life. We come and hear something. But if you actually told us to do something, then you're out of there. Nope, it's too hard. But that's not what God calls us to. He says, I paid my entire life for you. I sacrificed my life for you. I took the bondage of sin and slavery that off of you so that you could be free to choose me and to choose to walk in heavenly wisdom. And yet sometimes we, we say, yeah, thanks for the freedom, but I, I will use it just to... Do what I want to do. So uh, three ways to act on this this week. Seek to be humble. And I see seek because it's a process and you need God's help. And the second is ask God to give you wisdom. God is a good father. If you ask for wisdom, he will give it to you. And then thirdly is, uh, is to just meditate on the word of God this week. Pick a passage that speaks to you and meditate on it. Chew on it. Go through it. But uh, would you join me in prayer? Lord, have all of us. Have our whole hearts. Help us to be fully devoted to you. The areas of our lives that do not honor you, please help us to give them to you, to cleanse and to purify. Please confront us with any earthly wisdom in our lives and in our midst. Cleanse us and purify us and confront us with our sins so that we, we may be pure and holy and then fill us with your heavenly wisdom. Oh Lord, you're so good. Thank you, and we love you. Help us now to lift our, your name high in thanksgiving, and help us respond to your Holy Spirit's prompting with courage, and with hope, and with joy. Amen.